15. Several other things to remind everybody about. First of all, Brother Greer. Brother Greer sitting right down here. He is overseeing our Preacher Boys Club, Preacher Men's Club. It's uh, really more like a man's club, right? Some, some uh, younger ones are in there, but mostly it's uh, the men of our church. They get together and, and uh, share the Word of God with each other, time of testimony, and then uh, they uh, have people selected to preach. And so I would encourage you to get involved with that. If you have boys, they're welcome to go too. Bring them with you. And that's going to meet, I think it meets the first Sunday evening of each month after the service, around the corner in a classroom here. So uh, that, that's going to go on tonight. So be involved in that, get, get a part of that, and uh, you'll, you'll uh, benefit a lot from it, men. And listen, what, one thing we need in our church are men uh, who know how to teach the Bible, preach the Bible. And uh, the, uh, the generation that started with Pastor Brown... Uh, they got right in, and they learned how, and they, they're still teaching today, but we need a generation to come up behind them that know how to do that too. So this is a great uh, training ground for you to have exposure and a chance to teach the Word of God and be involved in those ways. Teenagers have quite a bit going on coming up. Uh, tomorrow is the uh, Youth Fest at uh, Central Baptist in Southington, and that's a big deal. Uh, uh, I don't see Pastor Mike. I don't know where he went. I'd probably, probably out taking a smoke break. Um, <laughs> Oh, I'm just kidding about that. But uh, he's, um, uh, they'll be leaving tomorrow morning for that. I believe those details are in the bulletin, or you can ask him. But they've got that. And then a Sunday evening uh, activity coming up. Uh, I think they're going to be shooting paper turkeys and eating apple pie. I might go to that one. That sounds like a lot of fun. So uh, that's coming up in the near future. But we've got a lot going on. We always have a lot going on. And, and uh, the church will be as exciting as you allow it to be. You'll get as much out of it as you avail yourself to. So be involved. Amen. First Samuel 15, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be looking just at verse 23 to start, and we'll come back to this verse several times throughout the message, as well as several other passages. I encourage you to keep your Bible open, and you're not here to hear my opinion, you're here to hear God's Word. So keep, your, keep the Bible open, and we'll be using it quite a bit like we normally do. First Samuel 15, verse 23 says, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry, because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Now, our theme this year in 2018 is back to the basics. And our theme verses come out of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where the Bible says that it, it, it the Bible, uh, it uh, is there for all, uh, uh, it's for doctrine, for reproof, for uh, correction and instruction in righteousness. Most of the theme this year has focused on doctrine, getting our doctrine down. Uh, this series is meant to focus on reproof. And the title of this series is Learning to Love Reproof. This is the fifth message in this series. Tonight we're going to look at this topic, Overcoming Stubbornness. Overcoming Stubbornness. Let's pray. I ask tonight, God, that you'd help us as we consider this topic to have Hearts that, uh, if not currently tender, will become tender. Or at least an admission of guilt that we do not have a tender heart. Or, Lord, that we do have a stubborn spirit. And then maybe, Lord, tonight a journey to overcome that. And to, Lord, break up the fallow ground. To break up the hard heart. To break up the stubbornness. So, Lord, as we look at some characters in the Bible that were relatively stubborn or very stubborn... 
God, may we examine our own hearts and make sure that we have a heart that's tender, not only to you, but tender to the truth that you have provided us, both in your word and in the world around us. So, uh, God, I pray that tonight the sermon would be revolutionary for somebody, but helpful for everybody. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. As I mentioned prior to the prayer, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says this. It says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God breathed it out. It says, And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness, or for instruction in righteousness, the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished in all good works. So why did God give us the Bible? He gave it to us for doctrine, so we would know what is right. Uh, for reproof, to correct us when we're wrong. Uh, for correction, to tell us how to stay right. And then instruction, to teach us how to live out that which we have been shown. And so, we have defined reproof this way. A critique or a correction, especially gently. Especially gently. So, a reproof is not someone in your face yelling at the top of their lungs and telling you how you're wrong. That is a rebuke. That's different than a reproof. A a reproof is a gentle correction. It is a steering of the life to keep it on the right path. And when we're starting to head toward the ditch, uh, that we get it back on the right path. Uh, How many of you here have ever been driving tired or distracted and have hit the rumble strips? You know what uh, this series of sermons is meant to be? It's meant to be the rumble strip. To get you back on the right, the right path. Um, uh, Paul told Timothy in this same book that he wrote him, as a pastor, he said, Timothy, you are to reprove, correct, gently. You're to rebuke, that's correct, harshly. You're to exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Or what he was saying is use the Bible to gently correct. If you must, harshly correct. Uh, the church of God, but when you correct, do it with a spirit of long-suffering. Do it with a spirit of patience. Do it with a spirit of kindness. So, um, what he was saying is that the Bible is to be, uh, is to correct the church, but, but Timothy, do it with patience. Do it with patience. Now, Proverbs, the book of Proverbs tells us that reproofs don't just get us back on the path of life, but reproofs are the path of life. Let me read a verse for you here. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23 says this, For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light, and reproofs of instruction are the ways of life. They are the ways of life. Um, nobody, nobody likes to be told that they're doing wrong. Nobody. We all hate it. Uh, when someone says, hey, you need to stop doing that, because that's going to mess you up. That's going to mess somebody else up. Hey, you know, that, 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 that habit in your life, that is not a holy habit to have. Whether it's, whether it's the way you're dressing or what you're listening to or where you're going or how you're talking, uh, uh, nobody likes to be corrected. 
when uh, we're told you need to read your Bible more or you need to pray more, or you need to uh, distribute more gospel tracts or you need to invite more people to church because you're just not quite doing enough. Uh, when that is told us, the truth is we generally don't like it. But Proverbs tells us that having someone correct us, having the Bible correct us, having people uh, point out where we're falling short or where we're getting off the path, that isn't just That isn't just to help us get back on the path. It is the path of life. So we need to learn to embrace reproof. We need to learn to appreciate reproof. Now, so far in this series, we have looked at three topics of strong correction. We've looked at uh, first, we looked at the sin of self-reliance, trying to live the Christian life without the Christ of the Christian life. We've looked at laziness. And then we, uh, uh, I believe it was last week, we challenged the men to stand up and uh, be real men. Now, tonight, I want to ask you this question. Is your heart prepared to receive correction? Or have you already put your defense mechanism up and you say, oh, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, That's not a struggle I have. Pastor, I'm not stubborn. Well, there are levels of being stubborn, right? There is that old cranky grandpa who's stubborn about everything. We all have met that guy, all right? Um, And and then there are those who are not stubborn in most areas, but have one area where they're stubborn. I think we all have one area where maybe we're a little stubborn. And so let's not paint with a broad brush tonight. Let's ask God right now, right where you are, Take a moment and ask God, reveal to me where I have a stubborn spirit. Help me to know that. How many of you know this? That you can see stubbornness in someone else better than you can yourself. How many understand that? So be self-aware. Ask yourself this question. Ask the Lord this question. God, will you reveal to me where I need to be corrected in this area? Where I will stop being so stubborn. Now, let me be clear, I don't want to change a single person in the auditorium tonight. You say, Pastor, does that mean you don't want us to leave here changed? That's not what I meant. I don't want to be the one that changes you. Because I can't change you. Humans don't change humans. God changes humans. Um, I can get up here and try to nag you into change, and I might be able to manipulate short-term change, but only God brings about real, long-term change. So tonight, what I want you to do is open your heart and ask God, in the form of the Holy Spirit, who has taken up His dwelling in you if you're saved, to, to reveal to you where maybe you're struggling, and help ask Him to help you to change. I believe there is a sin that many Christians are guilty of. At times, I must say that I am guilty of this sin as well. And it is this sin of stubbornness. Now, sometimes being stubborn can be good. When I think of a stubborn person, my mind immediately goes to my brother, Tim Jr. Now, I am the oldest of seven, and Tim is the second oldest of seven. And I, for the most part, was compliant at home. I wanted to please my parents, and so I was willing to alter my behavior in order to, to, to know that I had pleased them. My brother was not so quick to alter his behavior to please mom and dad. 
Um, now, I'll say this about my brother, and this is where being stubborn can be good. I have no doubt that when it comes to his Bible doctrine, that Tim Jr. will never compromise an inch about what he believes. You say, well, how can you be so certain? Because Tim never compromises on anything with anybody, ever. He's gotten married, and so he's gotten better about this. But when he was younger, boy, he refused to change on anything. I remember one, uh, uh, one, one day, I don't remember a lot of things from this time in my life. I was probably four. I may have been three. I was really little. This is one of the only memories I have from that time going back. I remember getting saved at four, and I remember this happened somewhere around that time. As a, these are probably the only two events I remember. But my, um, my brother was sitting there at the, at the table. He was either three or about to turn three. And uh, my mom had made a bowl of corn or made corn and put it on his plate. And uh, she uh, and, and Tim liked corn. It wasn't that he didn't like corn. But that particular day, Tim's stubborn streak had come out. And my uh, my dad looked at Tim. He had eaten everything on his plate and he had drank his milk. And, and my dad said, Tim, you can't get up from the table until you eat your corn. Back then they called him Timmy. Timmy, you can't get up from the table until you eat your corn. And he put his arms across his chest, and he stuck his bottom lip out, and he said, No! And my dad said, Timmy, eat your corn. And so he knew better than to say no a second time, or he's going to get, you know, he's going to get corrected, uh, physically corrected. And so he just put his arms across his chest, and he slops in his seat, and he refused to eat the corn. Well, you can't outstumber my dad. You just can't do that. And so my dad said, eat your corn. And he shook his head. Mm-mm. And so my dad picked him up and took him back, spanked his little bottom, put him back in the chair and said, eat your corn. He stopped crying. You wouldn't eat his corn. Five or six or seven spankings later, my dad realized this boy is never going to eat his corn. I could spank him to the end of the day. He's still not going to eat it. And so when you can't, when you can't um, uh, uh, spank a child into getting them to what you want them to do, you have to outthink them. So my dad wisely looked at Timmy and he said, Timmy, if you don't eat the corn that's on your plate, your mother is going to make another can of corn and we're going to keep doing this until you eat what's on your plate and in that pot. Timmy ate his corn. Um, now... My dad later said this about my brother. He said, I believe I broke the stubborn will of all seven children that God gave me with the exception of Tim. He said, I had to manage, listen to this, I had to manage his stubborn spirit all the way through his growing up years. I had to give that to God and as an adult, let God break him down. I have to believe that my brother is not the only stubborn person that I know. I have to believe there are some of you here today that struggle with the same thing that my brother has struggled with much of his life. Um, I can say this. I know for a fact that God has done that with my brother mostly. Um, that He and his wife have now been married for five or six years. And if he had not been able to be broken down on some level, that marriage would have fallen apart. His wife is a patient woman, though, I, I must say. Let me ask you this evening, how about you? Are you stubborn? Now, let me give you some signs that you may be stubborn, okay? Uh, you may be stubborn if you keep uh, at an idea or plan 
or insist on making your point, even when you know you're wrong. You know you're wrong. You've been proven wrong, but you're going to keep arguing because you don't want to give up on that argument. You don't want to let go. You know you're wrong deep down inside, but you won't change your mind. You won't stop arguing. You may be stubborn if you do something you want to do, even if no one else wants to do it. There's a group of you and you say, where are we going to go eat? And the stubborn person says, I want to go eat here. And everyone else says, but we want to go eat over there. The stubborn person gets in their car and drives the other place and goes all by themselves. If you do that, you're stubborn. Okay? Uh, you may be stubborn if when others present an idea, you tend to point out all the reasons why it won't work. Why it won't work. You are polypessimist. You are Debbie Downer, right? Someone says, uh, well, why don't we try this? Well, that won't work. Well, why not? Can we just be honest? It won't work because it wasn't your idea. So you're going to throw cold water on everyone else's zeal because you it wasn't your idea. And you're just being stubborn. Uh, you may be stubborn if you visibly feel anger, frustration, and impatience when others try to persuade you of something you don't agree with. You ever done that with someone? You try to talk them out of something they claim to believe? And then they just get upset with you. And then they start calling you names. They start uh, yelling at you. It's like, look, I'm just trying to help you to see see it my way. And they, they don't want at all to agree with you. They just want to get mad and upset and fight with you. Or angry, upset and fight with you. If you do those things, then you're a stubborn person. Now, let me say this about stubbornness. Stubbornness hurts relationships. It hurts us at home. It hurts us at work. It can cost us our jobs. It can cost us uh, our children. It can cost us a marriage. It, it can cost us uh, 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 friends. It, it can hurt us uh, while we're watching the news or reading a book. You ever sat there and watched the news with someone who's stubborn? They just argue with the person giving the news. It's like, hey, they they can't hear you. You ever been there where you're watching the news with someone and they just keep yelling at the TV? It's like, hey, quit look, quit yelling at the TV. If you don't like what they're saying, turn it off or change the channel. Because they're not hearing you. This is the, you know, I, where I struggle with this is when I'm driving down the road. Because I'm always, you know, on the go. And when someone cuts me off, I'm like, hey, what are you doing? And Angel's like, you know they can't hear you, right? And I'm like, well, it doesn't matter. I wish they could, right? And then you pull up next to them at the light and there's that awkwardness, you know. And it's just like, stare out the windshield. Don't look over, and you look over, and you look right back, right? Uh, but there's that stubbornness that can settle in, and it can hurt you. It can keep you from gathering the facts to a situation. If you're stubborn and skeptical while, about being stubborn while you're reading a book, it can ruin a book that otherwise would enlighten you and help you. Let me give you quickly a definition for stubbornness. And this comes out of the 1611 Dictionary for Stubbornness. There it is, unreasonably obstinate. Inflexibility fixed in opinion, not to be moved or persuaded by reason, inflexible, unreasonably obstinate. Now, look, I believe that you've got to be stubborn when it comes to what you believe about the Bible, right? You need to be open-minded long enough to learn what it is you are supposed to believe. And when you learn that, you become stubborn about it. And you make someone uh, provide you a mountain of evidence to change your mind. 
Right. But uh, there are things we're to be stubborn about. But then there is being unreasonably stubborn. There's being fixed, inflexibly fixed in one's opinion. Uh, there is the uh, 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 the stubbornness that says I'm not going to be moved or persuaded by reasons. I'm going to be inflexible in every single way, in every single way. And that will hurt you in your relationships. Now, I'll also say this beyond it hurting you at home with your friends, with your children, with your spouse at work, beyond it hurting you when it comes to watching the news or reading a book, it will inevitably put a ceiling over your spiritual growth. You will not grow spiritually if you are a stubborn person. Let me just uh, put it to you this way. Stubbornness causes us to reject the Bible when we are living contrary to it. Stubbornness causes us to reject the Holy Spirit when he works to change us. Stubbornness causes us to push away from a Sunday school teacher that makes a suggestion for how we can be a better person or a godly counselor that does that. Stubbornness causes us to shrug our shoulders at preaching or causes us to nitpick his sermons to death until we won't, we don't get anything from the Bible because we're caught up on some technicality where the preacher misspoke and we're stubborn about changing and we make excuses for our stubbornness. Beyond that, stubbornness is a spiritual and a relational disease that must be dealt with. I believe that Christians today must take a hard look inside and ask themselves if they are being stubborn in their spirit toward God. I believe that Christians have a duty to keep their heart tender toward uh, toward change as God's uh, as God's word and other godly counselors point out areas in uh, their lives that need to be made better. So let's uh, look at four main thoughts this evening about this topic of overcoming stubbornness. I'd encourage you, as I do every service, to take notes, get out a notepad or uh, a loose leaf uh, piece of paper. If you need to use a, uh, a, a giving envelope in front of you, do that. But take notes. Uh, obviously, if you have a cell phone and you want to use the notes app on your phone, uh, but, but take notes nonetheless. That way you can review this and uh, look at it in greater depth. Uh, number one in the message this evening, notice a stubborn spirit. A stubborn spirit. Let's look at three examples in the Bible of people that were stubborn. And I would say stubborn for different reasons. Letter A, notice Cain, headstrong about his salvation. Headstrong about his salvation. Turn over to Genesis chapter 4 with me, if you would. Genesis chapter 4. And let's look at uh, some verses here. And uh, we know the backstory here. Most of you would know the backstory. But Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, uh, Eve and Adam were tempted into doing wrong. They sinned. They were rebuked by God. They were cast out of the garden. And then uh, they began to procreate after uh, they were uh, uh, thrown out. And God gave them uh, two children right off the bat. Cain, the old eldest, and then Abel, his brother. Look at Genesis chapter 4 and verse number 1. The Bible says, And Adam knew his wife. And she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth. 
and his countenance fell. We read here that, his, he, that he was wroth, he was angry, that his countenance dropped off. He, he had a, uh, not only was he angry outwardly, but he was angry, or uh, not only was he angry inwardly, but that began to manifest outwardly in uh, the, the scar, the scowl on his face, the way he, way he carried himself, his body language. And really what you can say about verse 5 is we begin to see Cain's stubbornness. Look at verse 6. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why are you being stubborn? Or why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, hey, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Speaking of Abel, and Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not, am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. What happened here is that uh, they were taught by their mom and dad, Hey, you need to, on a regular basis, offer up this sin offering to make atonement for your sin. You need to take a lamb, a, a firstborn lamb that's without blemish or spot, and you need to put it up here on this altar, and you need to kill it, and you need to kill it in this manner, so that uh, uh, that uh, that will represent your faith in a coming Messiah who will die for our sins. Well, Cain didn't want to do it that way. You see, Cain said... I don't want to get to heaven based on some coming Messiah. I'm going to get to heaven based on the works of my hand. Hey, Lord, here are these fruits and vegetables that I grew with my hands. This is the first time in the Bible we find a works-based salvation versus a grace-based salvation. Abel believed in a coming Messiah represented by the Lamb uh, there on his altar, and Cain believed in a works-based salvation represented by the works of his hands there on that altar. And uh, God came to him and said, hey, I'm not going to accept that. And uh, uh, Cain had a choice. He could have humbled his heart and said, okay, Lord, I'll do it your way. But no, he doubled down and he got stubborn about his salvation. He said, I'll get to heaven my way. And then guilt began to set in and anger began to set in. And that guilt and anger led to a murderous rage where Cain would kill his very brother. That's what stubbornness does. Stubbornness is a sin that's solitary and on its own, but that sin does not stay solitary very long. That sin leads to other sins in our lives. So we see that Cain was headstrong about his salvation. How about King Saul? King Saul, he was headstrong about his submissiveness. Let's let the Bible do the preaching to us tonight. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 13, and you'll want to hold your place in chapter 15, uh, because we'll be uh, going back and forth there several times this evening. But First Samuel 13, this is the first time we see Saul really blow it. Now, the backstory to Saul, really uh, briefly here, uh, Saul was a, a, a little nobody, nothing uh, that just worked for his dad on the farm. He was tall. He had a strong physique. But uh, in the grand scheme of all of Israel, nobody really knew who he was. And uh, uh, he was chosen for that reason because he had a humble heart and Samuel anointed him and he became king of Israel. And at first he did nothing with that. He went back home and worked for his dad. But in the process of time, he led the Israelites in a great battle where they won and his uh, kingdom really officially began. And he was recognized politically as a king from there moving forward. And what was Saul's duty? It was to lead the country. Yes, But it was to stay tender and submissive to God and God's man, the prophet Samuel. So, yes, Saul was in charge, but not over everybody. And Saul failed to realize, 
hey, I do still have the answer to somebody. And I'm not the head honcho. I'm not the big shot. There are still people I've got to be submissive to. And so uh, 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 Samuel here tells Saul, hey, listen, I want you to go down to this area. I want you to wait for me a set amount of days. And at the end of those days, I will come and perform a sacrifice. Once I have performed that sacrifice as the spiritual leader of the country, then you can go into battle and have God's blessing. Well, we see that uh, Samuel, uh, or rather that Saul was going to get impatient, and he didn't wait long enough for Samuel to come, and he began to do that, which he was not supposed to do. He began to perform that sacrifice and disobey the orders of God and God's man. Look at 1 Samuel 13, verse 7. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan uh, to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. And he tarried seven days, according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me, and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering, and it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, here comes Samuel. Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him, that he might salute him. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? And now we see Saul beginning to make excuses. Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattered from me and that thou camest not within the days appointed and that of the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. Therefore, said I, the Philistines will come down now unto me to Gilgal and I have not made supplication of the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Some, uh, headstrong about his submissiveness. Hey, let's not forget, uh, uh, Saul, who is really in charge. It's not you, it's God. And God has chosen Samuel to be his mouthpiece, not to tell you what to do, but to convey what I want you to do. And he was told to do a certain thing. He was told to wait. And Saul got impatient. And Saul said, I am not going to be submissive to God's wishes. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it my way. Look at 1 Samuel 15. We find another instance of this same king being stubborn. Look at verse 1. 1 Samuel 15, 1. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to go uh, to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Okay. Saul, you blew it back in chapter 13. I'm coming to you here in 15, and I'm telling you, there are some specific things I want you to accomplish. You better take notes, and you better do them all. Are you ready? Okay? This is what God wants you to do. Look at verse 2. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now, go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all they have. Uh, pretty clear here. And spare them not, both slay, uh, uh, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Now, that's pretty clear, is it not? You're to take the army, you're to lead them to where the Amalekites are, and you are to destroy everything that's breathing among them. Everything. 
Everything. You are to, you are to completely eradicate the Amalekites off the planet. Not one living person is to remain, nor are any of the animals that they own. Kill all of them. Couldn't have been more clear. Now, look down to verse number 10. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. For he is turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. Listen, Samuel loved Saul. He, he wept over Saul's inability to be submissive. He wept over Saul's stubbornness. Verse 12, and when Samuel rose up, or arose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place, and is gone about, and passed on, and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. He said, to, he sees Samuel coming down the way, he says, Hey, Samuel, guess what? I did exactly what God told me to do. That's a lie. And he's about to get called out for it. Verse 14. And Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, Look, he's going to shift the blame. They have brought them from the, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people, not me, the people spared the beast of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest, the rest we have utterly destroyed. So what does uh, he say here? He says, Oh, well, we kept a couple of animals behind. Well, that's not what you were told to do. And then we find out later in this passage that he also held on to the king. And if you know anything about the, the culture of that day, they would take the kings that they would capture, they would cut off their thumbs and their big toes so they couldn't walk or hold anything very well. They would stick them down under their tables. This is sadistic. And while they were eating, they would eat sloppily and let the food fall on the ground so that these kings would grapple with each other to pick it up with the four fingers they had on each hand remaining and try to feed themselves. That's what he was planning on doing with this king. He was planning on using him as a trophy. And God said, Saul, I gave you a command and you couldn't do it. You're so stubborn that you won't do it my way. You have to do it your way. Now, Christians, I want you to listen to me right now. Because of all of the things I'm going to say this evening, this one and maybe letter C on this point will affect most of you the most. Do you know why most Christians pick and choose the parts of the Bible they want to obey? Because they are stubborn. They're stubborn. Uh, I have seen Christians pick a verse or pick a set of verses or pick a handful of topics. And boy, they've got those down flat. But then there are these other areas they're struggling in. And when someone points it out, they say, well, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear about that. And I'd say this. Are you submissive to the entire Word of God, or are you only submissive where it's convenient for you? If you're only being submissive where it's convenient for you, then my friend, you're no better than King Saul was. We've got to learn to give our stubborn spirits over to the Lord and say, God, have thine own way. Have thine own way. 
Thou art the potter, I am the clay. And when you see that stubborn will down inside of me, the clay, reach down and rip it out and take the rest of the clay and mold it into something Wonderful. So we see Cain, he was headstrong about his salvation. Uh, uh, Saul here, King Saul's headstrong about his submissiveness. Well, how about Jonah? He was headstrong because of spite. Because of spite. Turn over to Jonah chapter 3. Hold your place in 1 Samuel. We'll come back there in a minute. Turn over to Jonah chapter 3. And look at verse number 10. Now I've got to say, to have Jonah's attitude toward the Ninevites... There was a lot of, of bitterness and hurt and animosity that had built up in him toward that crowd. I'm not going to tell the backstory because I think everyone here knows about Jonah being sent to Nineveh and being swallowed by the whale because he went to Tarshish, the opposite direction. So I won't get into all that. But look at Jonah's attitude in chapter 3, verse 10. And God saw their works. This is after he preaches the sermon. Uh, one of the shortest sermons in the Bible. And God saw their works, and they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Now look at chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. I don't know a preacher that preaches a sermon, then revival breaks out, and that preacher gets mad because revival broke out. But that was Jonah's attitude. He preached a sermon and said, God is going to destroy you. He walks outside the city to see if God's hoping God would destroy it. And then when he sees they're beginning to repent, he gets angry about it. He gets upset about it. Look at chapter 4, verse 1 again. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And this is some of the most hilarious verses in the Bible to me. Look at verse 2. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of all the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Hey God, I'm so upset these people repented and got their hearts right and found forgiveness for you. Just kill me! If your enemy that had mistreated you the most, and we all have someone in our life that's deeply hurt us, you live life long enough, it's going to happen. And we don't need to share war stories, do we? Because we all have them. If you're not, you don't have one yet, it's probably because you're still a child or a young adult. Hang in there, they're coming, I promise. But if that person was totally forgiven by God and blessed, how would you feel about it? It's really easy to emotionally be detached from Jonah's situation and and kind of laugh at Jonah's attitude. But God began to pour down blessings on your enemy, the way he did on Jonah's enemy. You have to understand something about the Ninevites. They were vicious and vile. They would catch Israelites and skin them alive and hang their skins on the wall. These people were ruthless. These people may have very well killed a Jonah's family. We don't know. But we know history tells us a lot about the Ninevites. They were awful people. They were awful people. They were God-hating, secular, idolatrous people. 
And Jonah hated them. He was so upset that God had forgiven him. He wanted the wrath of God to just be poured out and to punish. And Jonah became very stubborn against God in other areas of his life because he had this spite, this unforgiveness in his heart toward his enemies. A stubborn spirit. How about you tonight, Christian? Do you have a stubborn spirit? Do you have an attitude toward God or others that says, I won't move an inch. I don't care what the facts are. I don't want to hear them. Don't bother me. I'm not moving. The word stubborn, that word stub is the beginning of the word. It comes from the idea of something, a stub of a stick that's immovable or unbreakable. Are you like that stick that won't break, that won't bend, that won't move in your spirit? Why is that? Is that because you're just, you refuse to be submissive to God? Or is it because you have grown spiteful in your spirit and you have allowed that to affect other areas of your life? Number one, we see a stubborn spirit. I hasten. Number two, a stern warning. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15 in verse 23. So, uh, uh, Samuel is looking at Saul here back in the story. And Samuel, Saul's trying to lie to Samuel and say, hey, I did everything you said. And Samuel says, what, 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 what is that buying I hear? The bleeding of the sheep I hear. No, Saul, you have not obeyed. And God speaks through Samuel a very stern warning to Saul about his stubbornness. Look at verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Look at this next phrase. And phrase, in stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Quickly, letter A, stubbornness is iniquity. Iniquity. Now, we have a lot of words in the Bible for sin, do we not? There's transgressions, there's wickedness, there's iniquity. Um, uh, there are several others uh, and, and, and they all have a distinct meaning, right? They all kind of are categorized a little bit differently. And yes, they all involved uh, uh, in doing wrong, but they're doing wrong in different ways. Let me give you a definition for iniquity here. Go ahead and throw that next slide up there for me. Iniquity is gross injustice or wickedness, a violation of right or duty, a wicked act or a sin. And God says when you are stubborn, you are living out a gross injustice or a wickedness. When you uh, refuse to move an inch, and your theme song is, I shall not be moved. And not about your doctrine, but about your sin. The Bible says that that is iniquity. It is a violation of right or duty. It is a wicked act. And, 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 and you know, sometimes we just need someone to talk to us plain, don't we? We're being stubborn or we're living in a sin. We need someone to look at us and say, you're wrong. And here is why this is wrong. And we need someone to spell it out for us. Well, uh, Samuel looks at Saul and he says, let me help you understand how this is a problem, Saul. What you have done is you have committed the sin of being stubborn. And that stubbornness it's iniquity. 
Saul, you may think it's not a big deal that you just kept a few sheep and you kept back that king and you think, well, I obeyed 99% of the way, that's good enough. God says, no, 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 that is iniquity. It's wickedness. Notice next that uh, stubbornness is not just iniquity, but stubbornness is idolatry. It's idolatry. Now, let me quickly give you two definitions for idolatry that come from the Oxford Dictionary. The first one is this, the worship of idols... Images or anything made by hand or which is not God. Okay, I think that's the definition most of us think of when we see idolatry. Let me give you a secondary definition. I think more fits this. All right. Excessive attachment or veneration for anything or that which borders on adoration. This goes beyond getting down on your knees and going through the ritual of bowing down to a piece of stone. This is adoring something more than you adore God. What was Saul and Cain and Jonah, and when we're guilty of it, us, what, uh, what are all of those people guilty of when it comes to idolatry? We're guilty of worshiping ourselves. Do you know why you can't worship God when you're being stubborn? It's because you're too busy worshiping yourself. I've got to have it my way. Boy, that auditorium at church, it's too cold. That auditorium at church, it's too hot. Pastor, we've had some big days lately, and on Sunday morning, someone keeps taking my pew. Someone parked in my parking spot. Pastor, my husband, he looked at me funny. My, my wife, she's not treating me nice. And we, we, what are we do? We're worried about us. It's about me. It's about how people are treating me. And God says, hey, you need to quit adoring yourself so much and start adoring me in heaven. Not me, but God in heaven. Start, don't adore your pastor. Adore the God in heaven. Amen? There's not a lot up here to adore anyway. But adore the God in heaven and know that if you do that, you won't be guilty of idolatry. And, and, and what was uh, Samuel saying here? He's saying you're guilty of iniquity. You're guilty of just flat out worshiping yourself. Number three, notice some serious consequences. Some serious consequences. Now I'm going to rush through these, uh, but let's look at them quickly. Letter A, notice Cain was disowned. Cain was disowned. Genesis chapter 4, verse number 12, I'll read it for you. It says, When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. You know what uh, stubbornness got Cain? It got him basically solitary confinement on planet Earth. He was just disowned. He wasn't welcomed back at home. In fact, God put a mark on him. At the request of Cain, but there was a mark put on him and you knew that if you saw Cain, you weren't to, you weren't to hang out with him and you weren't to kill him. Neither one. You weren't to have good or bad interaction with Cain. And so what did stubbornness get Cain? It got him isolation. It got him uh, to be left alone. And I think he was probably able to convince some woman to marry him. Uh, uh, one of his sisters, uh, and I know that sounds weird, but that's the gene pool was much more pure back then. But outside of his own uh, offspring, he was totally secluded and off uh, by himself. And that's what stubbornness does. Hey, sir, when you're stubborn, nobody wants to be around you. When you're stubborn, the Holy Spirit probably sits inside and grieves and weeps and says, Why am I even trying with this knucklehead? Why am I even try trying with her? 
Boy, that, that, the, the Bible is read and a sermon is preached or, or, or a circumstance happens in their life and, and, and these things come along and I'm inside poking them and saying, hey, you need to change. And I, I'm not changing. I'm not moving an inch. You may not say it outwardly, but that's what your actions dictate. What that causes you is just other people to disown you. People don't want to be around you. Even God is depressed or hurt by the way you're behaving. Notice letter B. Saul was dethroned. Saul was dethroned. Now, back in 1 Samuel 15, if you look at verses 24 through verse 29, what you find is Samuel walking, I'll just tell you here, Samuel's walking away from Saul after rebuking him to the face, and Saul reaches out and grabs Samuel by his coat. And the coat actually rips in his hand. And then Samuel turns and says one of the most cutting, in-your-face things in the entire Bible. He turns and he says, just like that coat was torn, God is going to rip the kingdom away from you and your family. Let me just speak uh, uh, in a way that is understandable and applicable for us today. If you can't stop being stubborn, you are going to lose things in your life that you cherish and love. I think of a man named Ulysses that uh, attended my Spanish church in uh, Glen Burnie, Maryland. He and his wife and his two girls would come. And, and uh, uh, Ulysses and I, um, we had what you'd call a love-hate relationship. Boy, I went way out of my way to try to help him. Uh, but Ulysses was a drunk. He struggled with alcoholism, severely struggled with alcoholism. And I remember Ulysses coming in my office there at the church, and he, he, he came in in the middle of his work day. And he walked in, and I was shocked. And I said, Ulysses, what are you doing here? And he put his head down and began to weep. Ulysses was a tough guy, but he began to weep. I said, why are you here? Why are you not at work? He said, my drinking has cost me my job. His stubbornness, his, his oh, I can beat this, I can drink and keep going in life, it cost him his job. Several months later, I got a call from his wife. They were screaming in the background. It was, it was probably uh, 11 o'clock at night on a Saturday night in the middle of the winter. I uh, took my neighbor, Mark, who lived right next door to me. We got in my car and we drove to uh, the inner city of Baltimore where they lived. And I walked up uh, into uh, his home and he had taken his wife by the hair and drug her down the stairs. She was done with it. And she said, Pastor... I don't want to call the police. They didn't have papers. She was afraid of what would happen if they called the papers, uh, called the police. But she said, this man has got to go. And so me and Mark helped him gather his things and we walked him outside in the, in the cold. I had to leave him there. And I, I started to pull away, leaving him on the street in the middle of the night, freezing cold in the winter. And I went back and I put him in my car and, and Mark and I came up with the cash and, and we paid for him to stay in a hotel there uh, that night. And Ulysses would later uh, be separated from his family. Why? Because he was stubborn. And I'm here tonight to tell you that if you're stubborn with God in some way or another, you're going to get dethroned from something in your life. For others of you here, it may not cost you a, a spouse or a, 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 the relationship with a child. It may not cost you a job, but it may cost you a job promotion. 
It may cost you a position or an area of influence at church. It may cost you a deeper relationship with family. It may cost you a stronger walk with the Lord. So don't be stubborn or you'll experience the consequences of Saul. Letter C, we see Jonah was depressed. Jonah was depressed. So the funny thing about Jonah here in chapter 4 is that he's sitting out on this mountain waiting for the city to uh, have God's wrath pour down on it, kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah. And so God decides to do something. I think, I think this story shows God's got a sense of humor. He allows this gourd to grow up from the ground, and it grows up overnight. And he's sitting there under the gourd in the shade, and, and he's, and he's uh, protected from the sun, and all of a sudden the gourd dies and falls, just falls apart. And then uh, he, he, uh, he sits there and says, Lord, would you just kill me? I hate my life. You say, well, what was Jonah's punishment? Well, Jonah had to write this story, and he had to leave it there. He didn't get to put that it ended any different way. And the, the book ends with Jonah being very depressed. Can I tell you something about being stubborn? It is going to lead to uh, many bad things in your life, include anxiety and depression. Don't be stubborn. Have a tender heart toward God. And that brings us to number four, a soft and a tender heart. We've looked at a, a stubborn spirit, a stern warning. We've looked at some serious consequences. And number four, a, a soft and tender heart. Let me finish with a story about uh, uh, the, the predecessor of Saul, and that being King David. Turn over to Second Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12. Now, I gotta tell you that today, or rather earlier in the week when I was studying for this message, I kinda had one of these, uh, moments where things got really clear for me and I saw something in scripture I'd never seen before. And here's what I saw. Do you realize that David committed just as many egregious sins as Saul did? Do you agree, understand that? In fact, you can make a case that David's sins we're far worse than Saul's sins. But David, Jesus Christ is going to sit on his throne in the, in the, in the millennium. Saul was a one-trick one, one, uh, pony. Nobody, none of his children would follow. What differentiated David from Saul? It wasn't their transgressions. It was their heart when they had done wrong. Do you know the difference? This might be the only thing you get from the message this evening. If so, this will really help you. Do you know the difference between a victorious Christian and a struggling, floundering, failing Christian? It is your attitude when you do wrong and you, it is pointed out in your life. That's really the difference. We all trip up. We all mistakes, uh, make mistakes. We all fall at times. But when the corrective hand of God comes into your life, either through the Holy Spirit doing it directly or God pointing something out in your, in your scripture readings or a, a, a godly counselor or your pastor, when it's pointed out what you do with it will either make you a Saul or a David. Look at Second Samuel chapter 12. And this follows the sins of, of adultery and murder. Look at verse 7. And Nathan said to David, with his finger in his face most likely, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. So Samuel approached Saul, and Saul shrugged it off. Uh, Samuel, or rather Nathan here, approached David, and boy, David's attitude is quite different. Look down at verse 13. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. 
You see the difference here? When it's pointed out to David, he puts his head down and he recognizes that Nathan is the mouthpiece of God. And he says, boy, you're right. I blew it. There was true repentance in his heart. And God looked at David's heart and spoke through Nathan and said, because of your repentant heart, you're not going to die. Turn over to Psalm 139. We'll finish the sermon uh, with this uh, passage here. Psalm 139. This was written by David, I believe. And I, I hope that when we walk out tonight, that these verses will be the theme of our, of our heart's desire when it comes to stubbornness versus submissiveness. That tender heart toward God. God, you show me where I'm wrong. And I'll be quick to make that change. Look at verse 23 of Psalm 139. It says there, search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me. And know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. You know, that is the exact opposite of a stubborn spirit. Lord, here's my heart. Every corner of it. Every closet of it. Here are the keys to my heart. You examine everything about me as a human being. And Lord, where there is something that's wrong, you point it out to me and I make this commitment to you. I will work to confess it and make it right. How about it tonight, Christian? You have a stubborn spirit? You have that stubborn streak in you where you find yourself in arguments all the time with people just because it's fun to argue and fight, just because it's enjoyably stubborn. Let's not forget how Samuel labeled it to Saul. It's iniquity. It's idolatry. And consequences are coming. My friend, the opposite is we can be like David. We can have that tender heart. And when we fall, when we mess up, we can say, Lord, have thine own way. Have thine own way. Let's have our heads bowed nice closed tonight.